Hi, this is Dan Baum, host of Redefine You. Thanks for joining us for our summer reading series. We're joined by guest host Candace Mayhill, who we last heard in episode 19 of season two. For this series, we've asked members of the AACC community to read excerpts from their original writings, specifically texts and stories that enlighten and inspire. Our readers will also share what led them to write their selection, what they learned, and of course, how they redefine themselves. We hope you enjoy the series and return for season three, beginning this fall. My name is Garrett Brown. I'm a professor in the English and Creative Writing program at AACC. And today I'll be reading a collection of poems. So the poems I'm gonna read today are from a sequence of poems that focus on technology and how technology intersects with art, culture, politics, relationships, you name it. Uh, There's a lot of pop culture references in the poems too. Um, Music and video games seem to be something that I have been continually coming back to. This first one is about how technology that seems so cutting edge when we first take it out of the box becomes really quickly dated, you know, in a matter of a few years. And the poem ends with the dogs because, you know, for a hunter-gatherer society, dogs were technology. So this is called 19 Lines to the Stone Age. Feel the thin space age thicken to balk relic, compact disks to cassette, eight-track, captain, Kirk phones flip back into spiral, cords and clattering rotary. 64-bit pixie princesses pixelate to 8-bit blocks, slaying duck, dragons with an arrow. The razor baton leading a WYSIWYG parade of text squares into a cursor's sly wink as broken promises of paperless universes collate into recycled reams. The blackout rises a few feet each year and sleep mode lights on laptops too will dim into bioluminescence. Fireflies suspended over deer skins, drying by campfire while the ears of hunting dogs twitch. I think this next poem is kind of an updated version of Proust's Madeline Cookie. Uh, For those unfamiliar with the idea, um, in remembrance of things past, Marcel Proust talks about eating a Madeline cookie and how, you know, he he tasted and it conjures up uh, these images and sensations from childhood of... uh, I think it's his aunt who would give him Madeline cookies dipped in her tea and things like that. And so it's become this sort of idea of like a a thing that sparks a a stimulus that sparks a memory. And this poem's kind of similar to that, except the stimulus is an old Atari game and the memory is sort of the, the pattern that you have to use to beat the game. So this is called Manual Recall. On your 39th birthday, you discover the 2600 in a museum wood grain trim on the black plastic, console locked behind a glass display, plugged into a cathode ray television for authenticity. But the joy stick was loose, inviting young digital natives to toy with 8-bit blips after spraying handprints on sheets of block paper to learn how the artists of Lascaux coded created by. You spy adventure and send your cursor avatar spelunking into the invisible maze. As a kid, you loathe the gray screen that surrendered just glimpses of the path ahead, spend hours bumping walls, chasing bats, ending in the hollow of Yorgle's belly until the level finally was mastered 
so that now, here in our 21st century, though deleted from your conscious mind, your hands recall the routine, down, left, down, right, up, until you stand again before the castle gates, pleased, a part of you never released the grip. This next one's about computer glitches, and it sort of spans from kind of the first computer bug, which was like a literal moth that got inside the wiring of like one of those big room-sized computers, to glitches that can come up in like story-based video games when you accidentally kill off a character that you need to complete a quest. The poem's also a villanelle, uh, so it has a lot of, which is just a form that has a lot of repeated lines and rhymes in it. And I kind of liked the idea of writing a poem called Glitch without using the word glitch, like the title is glitch, but the, the word glitch doesn't appear in the poem. But I've tried to include that that itch, I-T-C-H, sound is one of the repeated rhymes, and so that the, the kind of ghost of the glitch is sort of kind of lingering throughout the poem. Anyway, this is called Glitch. Narrative comes unstitched. I return to find the quest giver dead. Plot and knots instead of a twist. Back to the load screen to sift past saves and recover the thread before narrative comes unstitched. Cybermoshers nose the rift between image and code, bend, data to bits, the original twist, was an ordinary moth adrift, coiled in wires, wings spread, among circuits looped and stitched, inside gears and tape it slipped, cursorial legs treading, punched manila stock and twists, language and mutations in persist, metamorphic viruses shred, Artifice, stitched, un, 404, sin, tax error, fail whale, no carrier. Again? Son of a bitch. This next one's pretty simple. It's called Mixed, and it's about sort of the act of making a mixtape. Uh, there's a lot of band and album references from the 80s crammed into this one, so fun little Easter eggs if you're an 80s music fan. Mixed. I release the hair trigger pause, snag the acoustic cut, of boys don't cry off the radio, and I forage older kids' vinyl for strange ways and joy division, and I brew the mixture, churning hours at the double cassette, eyeing the spool to see if love will tear us apart again, can share side A with somebody, and when the incantations are perfectly sequenced, the magazine cleverly titled in ballpoint, I press play and indulge in smeared black lipstick, love fraught and yowling over, wind chimes and synthesizers, drums thumping pornography before I slip the jewel box into your backpack, just knowing you'll feel it too. So this last poem's kind of a weird poem, and I'm smashing together a lot of things, but Mainly I'm thinking about, you know, the mechanical Turk, which is this, you know, both there's like a current version of this that Amazon uses where it's a, it's crowdsourcing labor that machines currently can't do. So things like doing data entry from like handwritten text, um, things like that. And they basically like crowdsource this out and, you know, they pay like four cents for every piece of data entry that you would do. And they call it the Mechanical Turk, which is based on this like 18th, 19th century automaton that played chess and 
you know, it was one of those things like you kind of crank it up and it like, you know, moves like a, like a, a creepy mannequin, you know, but this was like a big thing that like it, it played against Napoleon, Edgar Allan Poe saw it when it, it came to America. And actually the, the epigraph of the poem is, is from Poe. And so what would happen was people were trying to figure out how it worked, right? Like, was there a person inside or was, you know, this machine actually playing chess? Um, and of course there was a person inside. And so Poe writes this essay about it and I'll, I'll give you the epigraph and then I'll get into the poem itself. It is quite certain that the operations of the automaton are regulated by mind and by nothing else. The only question then is of the manner in which human agency is brought to bear. Pose Maelzel's chess player. But the Turkers. The only question is what they want us to see. Turbaned gypsy, his mahogany skin and goatee, hooped earrings and his eyes uncanny pendulum, swing between imperial rooks of ivory to paddock pawns, his mannequin fingers tapping alongside the claimed queen. Maelzel would spin the Turk around, display his music box innards, pin barrel and power drive, a mainspring taut with vitality. And we know illusion is business. The kiosk Copperfield adjusts his half Windsor, waves his hand and poof goes your nickel. Then another $24.99 to buy the trick, guaranteed to dazzle your nephews, eyes into flying saucers. It's his business to hawk vanish boxes, blue handkerchiefs that blush red with a flap, Svengali decks flush with the queen of spades. His business to sell a magician's topet and deny it was a cut purse's tool. But what remains invisible the human player under the cabinet paid in coins a child magician could make disappear. That's nobody's business. Good morning, Garrett, and welcome. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Candace. Yeah. <laughs> what inspired you to write these poems as, as a group? So, you know, as a writer and as a teacher of writing, um, you know, I feel like we're living through this kind of amazing moment where what constitutes like a text is being challenged by technology. You know, it's like this period of transition that, you know, many people have kind of compared it as being as paradigm changing as the development of like the printing press. Right. And I think it's something that like my generation as a, I'm a Gen Xer is kind of able to speak to in ways that maybe other generations can't, right? You know, the we kind of lived through that rapid transition. You know, I, I learned to type in high school on a manual typewriter. And four years after that, I was in college sending emails and doing research on the internet and things like that. So, you know, we kind of have, our generation sort of has this foot in sort of print culture and digital culture. And the way that wraps up with with text, whether that's, you know, text that I would, you know, teach in a classroom as a teacher or, you know, approach as a writer. Yeah. So I think that that actually kind of leads really nicely into my next question that I have for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about your writing process in general um, and then kind of what challenges you faced when writing these particular poems? I find it's very interesting to think about process, especially how process comes in with technology, and since that's kind of the focus of what you're doing here. 
Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, um, especially since it's changed a lot. You know, I, I used to write almost completely longhand in notebooks, and I find myself doing that so, so rarely these days. Um, while I certainly keep a notebook for uh, notes and scraps of ideas, um, almost everything is sort of composed kind of on the screen these days. You know, I things that haven't changed too much is that, you know, I think the getting material involves kind of writing in the morning. And so kind of getting up before other thoughts kind of crowd into your head, um, you know, just sitting down and, and doing anywhere from 20 minutes to 40 minutes of just kind of free writing. And, you know, and, and a lot of that just gets tossed and is not worth much, but you know, you kind of dig through it and sift out some ideas or some lines or some things that, you know, are kind of the seeds of things that that might become poems. And, you know, for this particular series, you know, I had this idea of a, a group of poems that would kind of serve as liner notes, you know, liner notes for an album that, that doesn't exist. Um, you know, and I even had sort of this idea of like, you know, if it was published in a book that was kind of a you know, a CD or a cassette kind of jewel case that sort of lacked the, you know, there wouldn't be a cassette or a CD in it, but, um, you know, you would kind of have the liner note, you would read the liner notes the way you would read them for an album. Um, you know, and I, and I kind of think of that as sort of the idea of stressing the way in which, you know, the materialism of the world seems to be vanishing in certain ways, you know, like we we don't buy albums anymore that, you know, that you can hold and like look at the artwork and look at the liner notes. You know, we often don't even buy books anymore that in a ways that we can hold them and smell them and flip through them and make notes in them. And so, you know, that idea of sort of the, the physicality of, of text and music, the tangibility of it kind of slipping away was sort of a, an inspiration for these poems. Um, and the ones that I'm, you know, that I've read today are, you know, they're kind of the beginnings of what I think is, might end up to be being a longer collection. You know, in terms of the challenges for this piece, I think that the, it's really hard to not, when you're dealing with like writing about technology, it's really hard not to fall into simple nostalgia. You know, there's like a really simplistic version of some of the ideas that I'm dealing with, right? Where it's like, you know, Google's making us stupid, Twitter's making us mean, blah, blah, blah. And like, you don't want to fall into those kind of typical tropes. And so I need to be really careful about kind of keeping my own nostalgia in check and kind of pushing on feelings and trying to ask bigger questions. And it's part of the reason why I think like, but the Turkers is kind of an important poem. Because on the one hand, it is about, it's about technology, you know, it's about essentially Amazon's use of the Mechanical Turk and crowdsourcing software. Um, but it's really kind of also about like the deception of capitalism and how, you know, human labor that makes the internet possible is either compensated very slightly or often not compensated at all. And so trying to get to those sort of larger ideas, but keeping it in the trappings of, you know, of images and, and feeling and emotion and personal experience is kind of a challenge. Absolutely. I'm, I'm nodding along as if you can see me. <laughs> I absolutely am. What did you learn about yourself, about others, or about the world through thinking these thoughts, through this creative process, and through putting this project together? So, 
you know, Frost has a famous saying, like, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, right? And I often, when I teach poetry, I often teach this idea that if you know what you're going to write going into it, it's going to fall flat on the page. And, you know, that the poem should really feel like an act of discovery happening rather than sort of a, the speaker reporting back from having this amazing experience. You know, so I think with any poem, you kind of, you know, or sequence of poems, you kind of go into it, like looking for, like, what what do I not know about it? And I think the, you know, the, the Turker poem was one that I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was about when I began writing it. I was just sort of obsessed with this idea of uh, magicians and magic and deception. The other one that I think comes to mind is, uh, is mixtape. Um, it's one that I really struggled with that poem for a long time, and it didn't quite click because I didn't quite know what it was about. It was one of those that kind of did sink into nostalgia, where it was just like, oh, I used to make mixtapes. Like, isn't that great? And then what clicked about it was discovering sort of the ending of the poem, which is that it wasn't really about the process of making the mixtape at all. It's really about the act of like giving the tape to somebody else and kind of hoping that you're recreating an experience, you know, for another person to share. And, and in that way, it kind of transcends the nostalgia a little bit because that kind of core experience is something that we can kind of continue to do today and sort of like, you know, send, playlists to friends and things like that. So I think trying to discover what each piece really wants to say, you know, there's there's a lot that I've kind of learned through that process. And we are all about redefinition. So how has writing these pieces redefined you? Yeah, so that's a really good question. You know, I like to think that each kind of manuscript that I've that I've written is an attempt to to redefine yourself, and 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 it, and it is. I mean, I think that's that's part of the reason to to write and to keep on writing. You know, my my first collection of poems was very much about you know religion and philosophy and family and and things of that nature. My, my dissertation work in graduate school was sort of obsessed with this idea of of observation and representation. You know, both in in science, thinking about things like astronomy and paleontology, and in art, you know, how art represents reality. The thing that I think I've been trying to redefine with these poems is getting a little bit more grounded in our current moment. You know, I think I'm still striving for big ideas, um, but I hope that I'm closer to kind of where big ideas and daily life kind of come into contact. You know, the, the paradigm shift you know, from text culture into digital culture, you know, it touches almost everything we do, you know, how we shop, how we work, how we do politics, how we listen to music, how we interact with others. So instead of trying to be a writer dealing with, you know, quote unquote, timeless issues, you know, I'm hoping that this work is kind of redefining me as a writer of a more specific moment and hopefully, hopefully saying something interesting and helpful about it. And how do you hope that these poems help others to redefine themselves, especially because you have been so grounded in what's going on currently with technology and right now are really technology dependent circumstances? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because I mean, I'm really trying really hard to to approach the material and as I try to approach all material sort of in a, in a real open minded way. Right. So like you 
a good poem should should raise questions rather than come to to complete answers, right? And so, you know, I think poetry is maybe less about helping people define themselves and maybe more about helping them challenge and question existing paradigms. And I guess maybe in that way, you know, you can't redefine yourself if you don't sort of undefine yourself or or start to see maybe cracks or things that need to be improved or worked through in your current definition of yourself. And so, I don't know, maybe it might be a, <laughs> it might be a little more destructive than constructive. Um, but I think de- de- destructive with a with an eye towards constructive, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Emily Dickinson said she knows a poem when it feels like the top of her head is coming off. So exactly. it's, you know, we let, we let other stuff in. <laughs> so now the, the English teacher type questions, what are you reading lately? So I've been writing a lot this summer. And so when I'm, when I'm writing poetry, I tend to, to need to read poetry for that to work. Um, uh, I just kind of finished Tracy K. Smith's Life on Mars, and I've just begun reading Sally Winmau's Oculus. I mean, both of those books are really interesting. Um, the Oculus is really interesting because Winmau seems to be touching on things that I've been thinking about, sort of both in my, my previous manuscript, thinking about observation and science, but also she also thinks about it through the lens of technology as well. So, you know, the the first... The first of two title poems in that collection are uh, this uh, young woman in Shanghai who committed suicide on, like, live-streamed her own death. And so she's really kind of getting into, you know, both issues of observation, but also, like, the way the technology lets us be sort of seen and not seen and invites us into these really personal spaces that are sometimes can be really troubling and, and horrifying or, you know, spaces that we can feel like we have no business being in. So, yeah, I mean, that's what <laughs> cheery stuff to, to go with the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, those are the, the things that I've been reading. <laughs> and then the, the very last question that we have for you, it's, it's a two-parter. So what else have you worked on that you want to tell people to take a look at? So if you want to point us towards any of your other writings or the dreaded question what are you working on right now that you'd be willing to tell? <laughs> well, luckily it's the summer, so I can answer that that second question. So I guess things that I've written that I'd want people to check out. So I have a chapbook of poems uh, called Cubicles that I think is still available on Amazon, which is another sort of very thematic collection. And, and I also have some nonfiction pieces that are online that I think people might be interested in. In terms of what I'm doing now, you know, I'm uh, I'm home a lot lately. I know that's weird, surprising to hear. And, you know, and it's, we're in this weird time where it seems like things, things are so domestic and so sort of very political at the same time. And, you know, simple things like going to the grocery store and whether you choose to go in or do curbside pickup, like not seems to not only be sort of a personal decision, but also a political decision, you know, the whole business of wearing masks and blah, blah, blah. And I want to be open to letting that that kind of filter into what I'm what I'm writing. So I don't know, so I'm writing sort of these weird poems that are kind of about very domestic things, but also trying to find, you know, in ways that don't hit the reader over the head, sort of, you know, the way that the kind of outside world is bringing kind of pressure on simple domestic decisions. I don't know, that's a very like abstract way of talking about poems that if you were to read them, probably 
wouldn't seem like that at all. But <laughs> but uh, that's sort of the bigger ideas that I've been kind of churning in my head. Great. I look forward to reading some of those. Thank you, Garrett, very much for, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Candace. Redefine You is a production of Anne Arundel Community College. Our summer series guest host is Candace Mayhill. Executive producer is Allison Baumbush. Our producer is Amanda Behrens. Our writer, Amy Carr Willard. Others who help with this podcast include Jeremiah Pravat, Angie Hamlet, Ben Pierce, and Alicia Renahan. Find show notes, how to subscribe, and other extras on our website, aacc.edu slash podcast. I'm your host and creator of this podcast, Dan Baum. Thanks for listening.